0: Welcome to Hello Health Today, where health is a leadership strategy and self-care is a professional responsibility. I'm Dr. Carmen Mohan. Joining me today is Natasha Reed who is Habitat for Humanity International's first global diversity, equity, and inclusion officer. Natasha is leading the development and execution of Habitat's global strategy for DEI. In addition to her work at Habitat, Natasha served as an associate pastor at the historic Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, Georgia for 11 years before joining All Saints Episcopal Church as minister for public life. Natasha is passionate about providing a voice to the voiceless and opportunities to communities that have been historically disadvantaged. She serves on the boards of the Global Harvard Alumni Association's Executive Committee, the Atlanta Community Food Bank, the Goodwill of North Georgia, the Georgia Budget and Policy Institute, and Westminster School. Some people say leaders are born not made. In Natasha's case, the saying rings true.
1: That really was the beginning of my quest to find out why we allow ourselves to be separated, why we miss out on the treasures of relationships with other people, and why we try to limit our love because of race.
0: Deep personal reflection is required for creating a more equitable community.
1: In many ways, it plays out this way. It it means that you are willing to have mirror moments where you're looking in the mirror, And asking yourself questions such as, how am I complicit perhaps in a culture of disparity?
0: What's most personal is most universal. And if each of us can come to accept this, the world will be a better place. Natasha, I have always wanted to sit down and have a cup of coffee with you. I'm so glad to have your time now.
1: Glad to be with you. And what's your favorite blend? <laughs>
0: <laughs> my favorite actually is Devotion and I have it imported from Brooklyn Ooh. New York isn't that I'm oh a coffee my snob <laughs> oh
1: wow it's so funny I was asking you that not anticipating such a great response that's great Oh, and now I need to oh. get that name from you because I thought I was a snob until now apparently I'm oh, not Oh
0: no! it's terrible whenever my husband wants me to feel really great he makes me pour overs from freshly ground Ooh. Devotion beans
1: <laughs> oh my goodness Oh, that sounds absolutely delicious. Okay, I need to. I need to give my husband a new practice. That's what needs to happen. <laughs> That's
0: I I have invited you to the show because it seems like diversity, equity, and inclusion is the buzz phrase of twenty twenty one. But after watching your TEDx talk, I figure you've been involved in DEI
1: pretty much your whole life. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you. I love how you captured it because it really is the buzz. Phrase word of the day. Um, but, you know, I've, I've lived it my whole life, and I think many of us have. You have in, in your various um, experiences and growing up with, as a person of color, as a woman of color, as we have all of these intersectionalities. Um, I often say my journey, because I like to talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion as a journey. My journey began before I was even born, uh, where uh, I was held at gunpoint in my mother's belly. So my mother and father, uh, mother is white, father is black. My mother is a white woman who participated in an exchange program at Spelman in 1968. And so she and uh, several other white women came to Spelman in 1968, and about 15 or so women from Spelman went up to her college in Winona, Minnesota. Um, Again, 1968, as a reminder, is the year King was assassinated. It's the year that the Kerner Commission came out with their report that basically showed that our country was two countries, one black, one white, separate and unequal. So very divisive time. Parents met, fell in love. My mother defied her white German Catholic family and married this black man from Snellville, Georgia. And in their first year of marriage, while my mother was pregnant with me, went to a movie um, together and were held at gunpoint by a white man with the gun pointed at my mother's belly, um, pregnant with me because he did not approve of their union. And so that was really, I often look back at that, having heard that story multiple times and influ- which has influenced my determination to really work at this artificially, socially constructed differentiation, differentiator between black and white folks um, and how that gunpoint moment in utero really was the beginning of my quest to find out why we allow ourselves to be separated, why we miss out on the treasures of relationships with other people, and why we try to limit our love because of race and because of other forms of difference. And so that really has informed the work that I've really done throughout my life um, in various ways and now do in a formal capacity as a DEI officer at Habitat.
0: I love what you say about why we limit our love. I don't think that any of us would say intentionally that we do that, but I, I hear you. And mm-hmm. um, I just, I
1: love that. Like, let's not place limits on love. <laughs> mm-hmm. And we do that in so many ways, right? We do. And you wonder why? Because are we afraid of what too much love looks like? Imagine a Maybe. world that has too much love, Right right, what would a world look like with too much love? And that that kind of, you know, especially as you think about the love you have for your children. I think that that parent-child love is like, sometimes it's so much we can't contain it. Like imagine a world that has that kind of uncontainable love. It'd be very different than what we see.
0: You mentioned Habitat. And I know that you are actually shaping the DEI strategies for this international organization. Uh, What's that look like?
1: Information is what it looks yeah. like to be honest yeah. with you. So it's interesting because um at Habitat as well as so many other organizations in this moment, kind of in the middle of our multiple pandemic historical moment of COVID, but what COVID has brought to light are the those pre existing conditions and what I say a lot of this work in this space of equity is the pre existing condition to the pre existing condition because it's inequities in that have really driven, um, the disparate impact of COVID. So lack of access to adequate healthcare, lack of access to adequate housing and lack of access, you know, to, um, adequate educational resources, you know, where we had people sheltering at home and kids having to go to school online in so many places, they didn't have band, they didn't have broadband. They didn't have access to, um, Computers, they didn't have access to the technology necessary to go to school online. People, yeah, they didn't fell have into the digital divide, right? That's right, Just right, right into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they didn't have access to safe shelter to shelter in at home, right? Or so, th- this work really, I think, has begun to expand in many places like a habitat. So, habitat really comes out of a strong um, historical beginning focused on justice and racial equity in many ways, um, founded um, by someone who was greatly influenced by Koinonia, which was the first interracial communal farm in this country, in the very divided middle Georgia, Southern Georgia city of Americas, right? It was so divided there that even Dr. King didn't go physically. Um, and so in that context, Habitat was born. Uh, So we've been kind of on, you know, pushing forward in this space of equity, of diversity, of inclusion for some time, but I think we realize the need to focus on it even more intentionally and to do so with a global perspective that forces us to think about um, all the issues of diversity and equity and inclusion that impact the ability to provide decent affordable housing to People to communities around the world. And so forming that means a lot of listening because diversity, equity, and inclusion is contextual, right? And, you know, different places of the world, priorities are focused on gender or on race or on people with disabilities or on LGBTQ concerns. So really listening to what those priorities are what um some of the 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 top areas of greatest impact are all of that is informing the creation of a global strategy so i'm in the process of forming that global strategy process of listening to a lot of voices process of hearing and um, looking back at ways we could do things better learning from that and creating a future state that that captures the vision and the mission of our organization so that part is fun
0: you know what I'll say is that if you're at the helm of this, I can't wait to see where we end up. Oh, wow. You know, like that's that's so cool. Uh, I, I see that you understand how to make good change possible on an organizational level. I think it's Thank amazing you. you can listen to so many different kinds of voices and hear them.
1: Thank you. And And it's hard because I also have... I, I have that pleaser mentality that has been age old in me, you know? So it's that you realize you can't please everyone. And so making those decisions on how do you, once you hear all of that information, you've gotta be able to move forward. So that's the, the hard component of it. And, and helping people feel that you see them and hear them is ultimately the goal of diversity, equity, inclusion. You know, having a bias for the margins folks that have otherwise been rendered invisible or silent. Now I want to hear you. I want to see you. I want to include you in this formation of this strategy. So it's, it's a lot of that kind of work as well. And, um, it also involves the other side of, of, of my work when in the ministry component and the spiritual piece is that this type of work really only happens when minds and hearts are engaged and willing to transform. And so it's. I often say that uh, the, air, the work of diversity, equity, and inclusion, when done well, is soul excavating work.
0: Wow. Oh, my goodness. Well, since you brought it up and we're soul excavating, <laughs> I just have to ask you, you know, let's, let's bring it out to anyone who doesn't know. In addition to your regular full-time job leading a global initiative at Habitat, You're also a minister. So, in fact, you were an associate pastor for women's ministries at the historical Ebenezer Church for more than a decade. So, Natasha, what everyone really wants to know is, does God give ministers more than 24 hours in a day?
1: (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah, no, That's a great no, question. No, I'm
0: asking. I'm asking because it seems like you have a seven-day work week, right? Well, with leading yes. at church and leading at work, and you've got three children at home. And to top all of that off, you serve on several boards of advisors. So I counted five, and, and maybe there's more. When
1: do you have time for yourself? Yeah. I, so my constant prayer is one I have not lived a life where I felt like I've been given more than 24 hours. So I, I can't answer for everyone else. Maybe they have some special connection with God. I don't have that. But what I do constantly feel nudged towards is that, you know, that adage to work smarter, not harder in some ways, beginning to ask God one, what can I say no to? Because that's important too. Because when we say no to things, we begin to say yes to things. So also multiply my abilities to have impact broadly right and so i say that saying i pray i do pray for guidance i do pray for insight i don't always get it right there's never truly balance but there can sometimes be harmony um and so figuring out how to um you know certain things rise to to the occasion to be addressed quickly. And then I can kind of shift from that and, and go to the next and shift from that. But I will say my anchoring part is I, for me, um, keeping my relationship with my God central is important for me because that's the well from which I drink. So finding ways to keep that central and keeping my first, what I call my first church, which is my home, Filled. If I can, if I can do my best to keep those areas filled, and I will say uh, that my husband is phenomenal and helps to keep a consistent stability at home as well. That allows me to kind of do all these other things. Um, and as my children get older, I'm a little bit more released to do other things as well. So constantly trying to figure out that tension. And there are definitely moments where you know, minister or not, I feel like I'm getting a C in everything. And I was always raised to be an A student. And so it's kind of figuring out how do I find some comfort in not being the A student all the time while still giving as, you know, significant parts of myself. And then why asking myself the question of why, right? Why am I doing the things that I'm doing? And if, in order, if I'm answering that question, because I feel purpose-driven, And I can identify that, then that gives more meaning to my life and allows me to be even more impactful in other places. If I'm doing it to please other people, that's a clear no. I gotta stop. That's something I won't. Right. So it's kind of always asking myself. And I would do I do quarterly check ins with myself to reevaluate each time to make sure that I'm not that I'm clear on why I'm doing certain things and that I'm not doing things needlessly or for the approval of others, but because I. I am able to contribute meaningfully and also receive um, some infilling along the way. So it's a continual conversation with myself and with God.
0: Spiritual health. Isn't a topic we've discussed on the show, but to me, you're like spirit embodied. Like you just glow in any room I've ever seen you. And I'm like, who is that lady?
1: Oh. How do you, how do you keep your spirit? Well, Um. So doing those things I said, the kind of the disciplines of prayer, of spending time reflecting, and I want more of that time. Um, in the Christian tradition and the Jew- Jewish tradition, the, in the Judeo-Christian tradition, you have a tradition of Sabbath, right? And uh, the concept of you know, resting and holding that, that space sacred, um, and we practice it in all different ways. But I often say, if we don't take that time for Sabbath, we become deformed, Rather than transformed. And so everything we touch then becomes deformed. So I'm trying to be even more intentional as I'm getting older and in in resting and having that space. So for me, sometimes Sabbath is long walks in nature. You know, for me, Sabbath may sometimes also be quiet moments in my kitchen where I cook a meal because I love to cook. You know, Sabbath may be time of prayer and getting away for a weekend um, just to reflect. And Sabbath may also be spending time with my children and inhaling them, like getting to to get in all their spaces and understand everything that they're doing. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And so it's kind of like finding those moments that give you that time to um, pull away from all the busyness and and really get back in touch to hear your voice again.
0: What's your philosophy on how spirituality affects physical and mental well-being
1: so i for and i I think that we're all connected right we're spiritual beings we're we're emotional beings we're physical beings and anytime one of those beings is out of balance um we we find some dis-ease that dis-ease may be stress it may be physical ailments, mental ailments. Um, And I think that really, even during this moment of the pandemic, it's made that even more apparent because we all have had to spend more time with ourselves probably than we had in the past, right? So it's kind of like, oh my gosh, all this time I haven't paid any attention to that ache in my ankle, right? So now it's like you're starting to hear ourselves and our body and our minds um, in ways that we may not have. So spiritual health to me is primary. Like if they're... There are all kinds of data that um, we look at when we talk about leadership and the health of a leader. And one is kind of on the lines of that corporate athlete model where it's like a pyramid. And at the top of the pyramid is your spiritual your spiritual um, um, nexus point. And that's the place where you identify your purpose. And for me throughout, um, I, as far back as I can remember to high school, I constantly would say, what do I feel purposed to do that sense of purpose is I, is defined for me through my spiritual relationships and through my understanding of who I understand myself to be created to be and what I've been created to do, which made me you know, make decisions in my life that are somewhat contrary to some of my peers. So I began preaching and really being intentional about ministry. My first year of law school while at Harvard is not a common trek. For a Harvard Law School student I didn't to also
0: focus—amazing! You started early.
1: Yeah, yeah. And as a woman growing up in a family that wasn't churchy, I hadn't seen other women preachers, and so it was also like, "Are you sure, God?" It was kind of like, "Are you talking to me?" So also <laughs> figuring out what that looked like. Um, and for me, what it has evolved into is one: I've always tag teamed faith and justice. I've much as I've asked the Lord, can I be released from law to just do ministry? Or can I be released from ministry to just do law and other things? I've, I've never gotten a clear okay. So I've always kind of done the two. So while I was you know practicing at a law firm in Atlanta, I was serving at Ebenezer. And now I'm in-house at, at Habitat and I'm serving All Saints Episcopal. So it's always been a tag team. And what it has translated into for me is, that spiritual component of my life. I've never felt the call as of yet. And I never say never. We learn that as we get older too, right? Uh, To be a senior pastor of a church, but I've often been called to pastor in the public space. And Mm. so that pastoring in the public space looks like serving on boards and looks like doing this work of DE&I at Habitat and globally. It looks like working... Um, at All Saints, to help us learn how to connect our faith to our public life and and how we connect Sunday to Monday and Sunday to Tuesday and Sunday, so that it's not just a an affair of a Sunday morning. It actually is our life. And that's what spiritual health to me means, finding a way to embody who I am and who I feel I've been called to be.
0: Well, When we started this uh, conversation with DEI, I actually didn't see the connection, the clear connection between the two that I thought, wow, this is, this one just never rests. But instead, I see that you are very well integrated and that the two fuel each other, that it's a synergistic uh, set of roles that you're playing. Mm-hmm. You had said the words, it's a soul excavation, that transforming. Transforming our world to make it more equitable requires a soul ex- excavation. What does that look like when you're not in church? You know, I, I really don't get it. And I don't think a lot of people do.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so soul excavation, uh, it, for, in many ways, it plays out this way. It, it means that you are willing to have mirror moments where you're looking in the mirror and asking yourself questions such as, how am I complicit perhaps in a culture of disparity that impacts the women on my team differently than it impacts the men? How am I as a leader in my organization playing a role in changing our culture, our professional development strategy such that People of color in my organization have just as much of an opportunity to succeed and advance as people who are not of color, people who are white. How am I, as a person of privilege, whatever that privilege may be, it may be race, it may be religious privilege. We're in a Christian country. As a Christian, I have privilege. It may be educational privilege. It may be um, um, location privilege, where we live, where we grow. So how do I utilize that privilege and leverage that privilege to open the door for someone who may not be so privileged? How do I begin asking these questions even outside of a faith context to really um, be a part of humanity in a way that I had not? Because if we live in our bubbles, we're not really a part of, of advancing humanity. We're limiting our love because we're only focused on loving people who look just like us and who live where we live and who play soccer on the same field our kids play soccer on and who, right? That's been the, the um, what I think in many instances is that the very divisive, is, it's, well, it's clearly divisive, but the very divisive nature of some of our federal, state and local policies in this country, even with respect to housing. Segregation is dangerous, not just because in and of itself, it it's disparate in how it impacts communities of different races, But it has divided up our neighbors right like if we we are now not able to neighbor with people who don't look like us we have othered people because we don't see them in the grocery stores or at the pta meetings we typically live in places even to this day unless we're intentional about not doing so where we all look alike where our kids are in school with kids who look just like them so we're missing out on a whole um, population of potential neighbors. You know, I often call this work a neighboring movement. You know, in the faith context, we're, we're called to love our neighbors as ourselves. Well, are we really loving our neighbors as ourselves if we are not even willing to see them or hear them? And so right. having those types of conversations.
0: Yeah, well, so joining that conversation, I would just say, isn't it interesting how it's so easy not to see it in the mirror when the policies that have been systematically laid forth for us enable us not to even have to consider, mm. right? So it's mm. harder to see it when it's not right in front of you or if you don't have to drive through it and you don't go to school with it or wait in line with it at the grocery store, right? Harder to yeah. see how divided we truly have uh, become and put that into the system instead of limitless love. Absolutely. It's easy for you to see the connections between um, the our lawmakers and how our communities are and our experience inside of our own skin with how we even maybe identify with spirit and with God. I wonder, we started like on a global scale, which is like kind of big for, for me to see. But you and I have been living in Atlanta for a long time, so decades. And in that time, Atlanta has really changed. So we've been watching our beloved Atlanta community change. Do you think we've made progress in affordable housing? Mm. (laughs) Right? Like all of it kind of like comes
1: and coalesces. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it depends on what we're comparing it to, you know? I mean, I think we've seen some progress in that space, but one of the indicators that we may want to consider is, uh, even looking at all of the new development in town and asking questions like what percentage of those units are affordable to people who are in 80% of the area median income in our city. If we ask those kind of more specific questions, which not everyone on here wants to necessarily do, because it's not something you just wake up and have your morning coffee and talk about, um, we begin to see the trends. The other way that we can talk about this in a more general context is, you know, Atlanta still ranks very high um, in terms of income disparity. And you know, the divide between um, the haves and the have nots remains pretty wide in Atlanta. We are in the top, at one point, we were number one of U.S. cities for income and um, in, in, income um, inequality. And I think we're still within the top five. Um, but we also see that gap with respect to wealth. And the wealth disparity, and we begin to look at it uh, across racial lines also, uh, is an indicator of the outgrowth of um, housing segregation and lack of opportunity for uh, African-Americans in particular, because many of those early policies targeted um, African-Americans, African-Americans to build wealth through home ownership. So... Uh, When we start talking about wealth disparities and the wealth gap in this country, which um, it's it's tied directly to home ownership rates and the gap in home ownership rates between whites and Blacks is just as wide, if not wider than they were in 1968 in the year that the Fair Housing Act was passed. So we're looking at that a lot in the housing context and in the housing sector to try to find ways to breach that divide. In Atlanta in particular, we have that income gap. We also have that wealth gap. Um, and it is exacerbated by uh, the lack of affordable housing opportunities that many people in our city are, are working to cure and to be a part of the solution for but we still have a long way to go.
0: Indeed. Um, I want you to know that I just really value the work that you are doing around affordable housing, because I see the direct connection between being well sheltered and being well, being healthy. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. what I do is usually on the other side of this, if I could just write a script for one affordable house, I want you to know I would, you know?
1: Absolutely. And that's actually one of the ways in which we have talked about housing, is that housing is a vaccine um, because it does provide, as you said, and we could go on and on about that, right? Shelter um, from environmental issues and concerns. It provides a place um, that for, for children to grow and to prosper. So you've got mental health um, concerns that it helps to, to meet some of those needs. And then, you know, uh, there's a great, book that really lays plain and lays bare the history of housing in this country written by a man named richard rothstein it's called the color of law and he started actually as an educational writer for the times and he began writing all these stories in the education space and talked about children you know suffering from asthma and having to come to school and learn or violence and and he realized the issue wasn't It wasn't on the educational, in the (laughs) asthma, but that asthma concern, that violence um, threat all was, was a product of where they were forced to live. And those connections between health and, and housing and educational attainment and all of the other outcomes that, that lead to a healthy life, um, are just, there's so many examples of, of why that intersectional analysis is important and essential to us really trying to create thriving and healthy neighborhoods and communities around the country.
0: So you just mentioned yet another buzzword, intersectionality. So intersectionality seems to come really naturally to you in the issues that you decide to champion. What's your favorite topic to speak about when you facilitate workshops or when you are invited Mm. to speak in front of groups?
1: Oh my goodness, that's a great question. I really enjoy the conversations about, really like we're having today, that uh, look at the whole person and then their ability to contribute to society. So I love conversations that touch on spiritual health and um, professional calling and helping people make those connections um, in ways that perhaps they hadn't before, because inevitably in that conversation, we're talking about justice. We're going to touch on issues of your how you identify yourself, race and gender, and how you walk around in the spaces you inhabit, and ultimately how you're able to influence those spaces and to be in sometimes, in some instances, light in dark places and hope in hopelessness and, um, how you can kindle your own fire because we can't constantly wait for other people to do so, right? And how we create networks to do so. How do we create, you know, my networks? My primary networks are my girlfriends, right? And then other networks, you know, outside of that, continue to grow, consent, con- like concentric circles. But it's like those are what what allows you to be you um, in that intersection of your professional calling and your your spiritual understanding of yourself.
0: Amazing, so I'm coming to the next one. Can I get on the list?
1: (laughs) Let's create one. We should tag team and do some, absolutely. I'm I'm on that, I'm all uh,
0: on that, okay, after we record. Yes,
1: yes. Oh, uh,
0: I have to admit, I'm kind of looking for like Natasha's special sauce for vitality. Is it two parts passion, one part faith? Like, what's the recipe?
1: (laughs) You know, it's interesting. I I don't know. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think there's a lot, and it's interesting because everything, you know, as they say, um, life for me ain't been no crystal stair, right? And yeah, so having yeah. having experienced a lot of pain and brokenness, and I wouldn't say unrequited love. I've been I've been loved a lot. So one of the things I used to always say is, I am so grateful that I have been loved so much. I have got to love. Like it's been given to me, I must give it. Um, but the, the pain and the challenge and the and, and those moments that really kind of turned the light on for me have helped me to appreciate life even more. And that's, that's the part that I think it's kind of like, you know, we're not guaranteed every day. We're not guaranteed. So we, you know, as I've been telling my boys, we're now, my older son is in college now and my, we have a, a daughter who's a, our oldest and she's in grad school. They've all kind of, they're moving up their stairway. I'm like, life is for the living. So, you know, time out for for living a dress rehearsal. Like we can't keep living a dress rehearsal. We have to live our lives. And so we're not going to get everything right. We're going to make some mistakes, but we're going to try. And we're going to walk in our faith as best we can and surround ourselves with other people who are doing so and you know speak truth to power and as i've gotten older i'll say speak to truth to power strategically so we're constructive (laughs) and not destructive (laughs) uh you know what is that the whitney young quote who used to be involved with the urban league he says, you know i guess i'm paraphrasing but he's saying you know our goal is not to be the loudest voice in the room but to be the most effective so figuring out how to do that Mm -hmm. well Mm -hmm. um
0: so Natasha, it's time for action steps for today. Can you think Mm. of just maybe three things that you would tell anybody who's
1: looking to use a really strong spirit in how they lead? So first is obviously keep the main thing the main thing, right? Jobs come and go. Um, Opportunities come and go board opportunities come. I mean, all these other things, your re, what builds your resume comes and goes, but the main thing, the main thing, your hearth, your family, your, your um, quiet space, your relationship with God, the things that feed your soul, they need to be in place because if not, everything else will fall. So keeping the main thing, the main thing. Um, checking in with yourself quarterly, making sure that you're, the things that you're doing line up with your understanding of your purpose for that season. Um, So that we stay in season in our lives. Our lives, we go through different seasons. Some seasons we need to say no to a lot of outside activity and focus on some internal work. And maybe that season is one to be more quiet. Maybe the next season is one to be more loud, but don't wear a bathing suit in the winter. Let's try to be in season. So I strive that way. And then third is, for me, um, value your relationships. You know, networking is used to be such a big deal. I think people when they were younger, but now what's important to me are investing in relationships that matter. People who are authentic and real, who will speak truth to me that I can speak truth to, and yeah, those are really important because. Those, those relationships nurture and they give you an opportunity to nurture. And they also provide you with your own mirror moments that keep you honest. So I would say those three things. Now, the other stuff is you hone your craft, you you stay studied <laughs> up, you work on, you know, refine who you are and what you know, build up your mental intellectual capacity in the areas that you're most interested in, come to the table ready. Um, all of those things are, I'm assuming that, and I'm trying to get us to focus in on those things that drive our passion and our purpose and our direction forward.
0: Absolutely, the wellspring, I call it the wellspring. Oh, I love that. Yeah, Natasha, I so appreciate you dropping by and laying down this wisdom,
1: you are amazing. Oh, thank you, I feel the same. This is a great space to be. And I will say um, one of the things about those relationships that I love is having spaces to celebrate others. Uh, And you do that so beautifully. (laughs) You are such a witness of that. And so as we close, I want to celebrate you and just thank you for um, lending your voice to this space and being so consistent with it. Um, You have a home with a husband and young children and consistency in this type of work is not easy. And so as you continue to pour out to us, may you be poured into as well. Oh, amen.
0: Thank you. Uh if you like what you hear on hello health today please take a moment to rate and review us you don't have to leave a lengthy review instead consider leaving just one word or a short phrase for example the word transformative with an explanation mark goes a long way to help other people find us as always action steps contact information and social handles are posted in the show notes until next time remember today is good Hi, everyone. Thank you for tuning in. Because I am a medical doctor, it's important for me to tell you that nothing I say here in this podcast can substitute for your doctor's advice. My lawyers make me say the same thing this way. The contents of this podcast are neither intended nor implied to be relied on for medical diagnosis, care, or treatment concerning any individual. Under no circumstances does this podcast create a physician-patient relationship, nor does it constitute engagement in the practice of medicine or the provision of any healthcare service to an individual patient. This podcast should not be used as a substitute for professional diagnosis and treatment. Consult a healthcare provider before making any healthcare decisions or to obtain guidance about any medical conditions. The producers of this podcast expressly disclaimed responsibility and shall have no liability for any damages, loss, injury, or liability whatsoever suffered as a result of reliance on the information contained in this podcast.